ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am Mission Control, your host, Stephen Buja, and joining me, as always, Amy Thomason in the house. Hello. How are you doing? Very good, and I'm super excited about our special guest today. Yes, we do have a very special guest. Now, Amy, you have mentioned him in the past. Uh, I you, have. This is your good friend Brian from Indianapolis, who I believe is your movie BFF? Besides me, of course. 100% is my movie BFF. We met very quickly. We met um, freshman year of college. I was running crew for a show that he was in. We met. We've loved films. Um, Brian and I discussing Frank Capra films at the Indianapolis airport caused me to miss a flight. Yeah, still sorry about that one. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So let's introduce Brian Hartz. Uh, I believe it's uh, husband, father, actor, business owner, and sound designer, lightsaber battler. Did I, am I missing anything? Am I missing any one of the oh, hats? Prob- probably a couple of them. Okay. Uh, I can well, only wear so many of them at once. Yes. <laughs> Brian, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, look forward to your knowledge on this week's movie, which, folks, we're very excited. We are introducing a new category because sometimes we go we watch a movie or we hear about a movie and we go oh of course that was nominated for best picture why wouldn't it have been nominated for best picture but it wasn't and so like the great marlon brando said could have had class could have been a contender we're gonna call these 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 films should have been a contender and we are starting with uh one of the all-time great science fiction movies 2001 a space odyssey directed by Stanley Kubrick, which is coming up on its 50th anniversary, at least of its British release this week, which is why we're yes. doing it. So everyone's 2001 crazy. We are just jumping right in there. We are actually on the verge of uh, Christopher Nolan uh, premiering a brand spanking new 70 millimeter print of it at Cannes. I know. As well. I am. Oh, I've man. never been more jealous to uh, <laughs> you know, of a. Of a of, of con before than, than, than I am right now. So uh, let us start by saying, what is your familiarity with this movie? Like, what is it? How does it, where does it resonate with you in the history of your film watching experience? Either one. Right. Away. I'll just, mine's very short. I've heard about this movie for years and years and years from Mr. Brian Hart's and my husband, I know we have a copy of the book at home, and it was one of those, I need to see this movie before I die movies. And I watched it once, and then I thought, great, check it off the bucket list, put it back in the DVD place in the closet, and I will never probably watch it again. <laughs> but I have. So, and, now, and then you came on the show, and all bets are off. And then I came on the show. So I have a limited, limited history with yep. it. And Brian Hart's. Amy always talks about the Amy Thompson top 100 to the point where I just just want to throttle her. And she insists upon me making my own top 100. And she said that once upon a time you made a top 100 list. And that this movie was 
numero uno. Is that true? Uh, I would I would put it at the top of the list most days. Now now uh, yeah, Amy badgered me for a long time about compiling a top one hundred. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, it's uh, as as I think I said to you separately. It's like a Sophie's choice for me, trying to trying to choose between films that I love, uh, because you know there's a, there's a lot of things that uh, you know. Given whatever day, I adore so many films that uh, any any given one of them could be at the top. It could be it's this. It could be Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, you know, any you no, any one of them. Got Lawrence of Arabia the first time you made the list, by the way, because I remember emailing you being like, "Uh, dude, really?" Yeah, see that. <laughs> It was it was the pressure of being on the spot to make a list, Amy. See, this is why I don't make lists. I love it. I love it. I love it. No, but uh, yes, it uh, it it is. There is a solid argument uh, to be made for it, uh, if not the greatest, one of the greatest films of all time. Um, and I know that's not terribly controversial these days, but it certainly was when it came out. So, but but yes, it's right at the top. I'm borderline obsessed with Stanley Kubrick. Um, I own every single one of his feature films. Uh, I think the only ones of his films I haven't seen are his early documentaries. Right. Um, I uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> 2001, right at the top of the list. When was your first exposure to this movie? When did you see it? I've been conscious of it pretty much all my life because my dad had the uh, soundtrack album on LP and we used to listen to it when I was a kid and just sort of uh, bounce around the living room listening to this strange music. Um, and then I finally finally saw it when it was broadcast on like PBS or something when I was maybe uh, you know 12 or 13 and I was just absolutely mesmerized. And um, my, my total uh, you know uber film dork moment uh, came when uh, I recorded this from TV when it was on and I so excited excited was I about the film uh, that I tried to subject my eighth grade classmates to it when we were on a bus trip, I think. You can imagine you know, the absurdity to begin with of, of, of watching 2001 on those tiny little TV screens that you used to have in buses. Uh, and also just a, uh, a bus full of, uh, of 13 and 14 year olds. Uh, they turned on me very quickly. And, uh, yeah, this is of, why we're friends, as, by the way. As, as, is, as, as is their right. I, I feel like that's uh, your... <laughs> but you, speaking of screens, I, I, I have since had the, the pleasure of seeing it actually on the big screen. Have, have either of you had that opportunity? I have. I, I got to see this at I think it was Lincoln Center with a live orchestra doing all of the music on a big screen. And that is one of the highlights of my cinema going uh, experience. And I, I, I will say, Amy, uh, if you have, what, regardless of what you think of the movie, it is one of those things that absolutely has to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Oh, I bet. And, and I really, I've got, I've got stuff to say, like, don't, this is just my initial, like getting my feet wet about this, but it, it really is. I mean, I, I can imagine it's just like the difference between watching Lawrence of Arabia on an iPad and seeing it in a big theater. Yeah, That's some, just another one. Yeah. There's something that adds to the awe and majesty of the film by just being literally overwhelmed by the imagery because, you know, Kubrick, he is, a very visual filmmaker and you know it deserves to be seen on the largest screen possible and if you can't see it with a live uh, orchestra there's something very my God. about that yeah you you win my friend you win <laughs> yeah. because 
that is incredible. Yeah. I, 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 I thought I was cool for being able to see a 70 millimeter print of it at the IMAX theater here in town, but live orchestra. Okay. You, you get this one. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was pretty cool, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the, uh, the Christopher Nolan's road show of the 70 millimeter unrestored print will swing by New York. I'm not, I'm, I'm feeling like it will. Cause we live in New York. I live in New York city and I'm, yes. I'm going to go try and carve out, many many hours to go see it again within several weeks of having already just seen it uh yeah this will be this will be a fun episode folks thank you for for sticking around so yes 2001 was nominated for some oscars but we're also going to talk about maybe some of the oscars it should have been nominated for and we're going to do that right after this break effects man at the studio almost plays God. Volcanoes erupt at his bidding. Tidal waves come and go. Earthquakes quake. It's all in a day's work. But what happens to such a man when he comes home to the little woman? Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Did I have a day? Ah, tell mommy. The Red Sea wouldn't part. <laughs> and some nut defrosted Siberia, and Mount Vesuvius backed up. What a coincidence. So did the sink. Well, don't look at me. Call a plumber. Call a plumber, me? The wife of the miracle worker? Special effects are make-believe. Plumbing is real. And real, too, is the ingenuity of the men responsible for the nominated special visual effects. Ice Station Zebra, Hal Millar, and J. McMillan Johnson. 2001, a space odyssey, Stanley Kubrick. The winner is Stanley Kubrick, 2001. <laughs> Mr. Kubrick, unfortunately, cannot be with us tonight. So we'll have his Oscar delivered to Mars, where he is scouting locations for 2002 Space Odyssey Revisited. People say that one of the great injustices of the Academy Award history was that Stanley Kubrick never received a Oscar, and that is mostly true. He never received a Best Director Oscar. He was nominated several times. He did, however, win the Oscar for be uh, Best Special Visual Effects at the 41st Academy Awards in 1969. His one and only, yes, he did not only direct, write, and oversee, I imagine literally everything about the production. He also was in charge of all these special visual effects because they did not have visual effects units back in the late 60s. 2001 was also nominated for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay from uh, Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, you will think, but wait, wasn't it a novel? It was The novel was written actually like kind of concurrently yep. with the movie. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to read the novel, uh, it can certainly lend some more insight into what is happening. It, I actually just finished uh, listening to it. And it's uh, having not seen the movie, uh, the novel is very good. But I think it you lose a little something. And, of course, we will talk about that later. 
Yeah, and, uh, uh, finally, I, I read the novel very shortly after seeing the film for the first time, and it, 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 it opened up a lot uh, to me because there was a lot that I wasn't able to parse at age 13. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's great. Uh, the sequels are also pretty fun, too. Yeah. I like, the, I li- I like uh, 3001 when Frank comes back because they find him floating in space. That one I haven't encountered. Oh, yeah, dude, do check it out. Do check it out. And finally, it was also nominated for Art Direction. Yes. And I will say that uh, I did do a, I did a, a search through, and science fiction and horror were kind of one in the same back in the day, back let be- back literally before two thousand one. So you know, we had a science fiction movie, had some horror elements to it. So there was one film, I believe, is a Doctor Jekyll adaptation in which a the main actor was, I think, either won or was nominated. But beyond that, this is really truly the first science fiction film to be nominated for any one of the big five Academy Awards and that is best director. So it really opened up the legitimacy of what the genre is supposed to be kind of Kubrick's aim at making uh, a great science fiction movie, (laughs) but we're not here to talk about what it was nominated for and what it won, what it did win. We're here to talk about what it should have been nominated for. And is there a case to be made that this should have been nominated for Best Picture? I, mean, I oh. guess I already tipped my hand on this one, but Amy. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was looking at the original nominees. And when we had talked about Lion in Winter yes, um, as a, for your reconsideration, just looking at that list of movies that came out that year, Bullet, Rosemary's Baby, one of the best movies of its genre, The Producers, there were a lot of great movies, and I've seen most of the movies that were nominated this year and for 1968, and yeah. there's definitely room to take off and add in 2001 A Space Odyssey, but I'm going to share that at the end when we do our little, how my personal do. nominees for that year, what they would have been, and what the winner would have been had I been in charge. For those of you who don't, might not remember, 1968, the film, Oliver! <laughs> One best oh, picture, and uh, I definitely just really, really hate that movie. Listen it's, to the podcast. Is, it's not a good movie. It is uh, way too long, too many songs. Oliver himself is a wet fart of a nothing character. I hate him. He doesn't even do, he doesn't even sing. It's a it's a woman singing. I'm like, oh, it's so much. Uh, Fagin is a terrible, terrible Jewish stereotype. Uh, the plotting is poor, and you know, with the exception of the artful Dodger, I, I just, I just wanted to punch him. Wow, I think you might hate Oliver even more than I do. I think I, as long as we have people who who hate Oliver, I'm, 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 I'm happy. Now. But I, honestly, I, Carol, Carol Reed, great director, you know, deserves Fire. deserves a place in in the pantheon of all time greats. This is not not one of Carol Reed's good movies, let alone best, let alone best picture of 1968 or any time. Yeah. No. Anything like they were, they were, they loved the musicals in the. And furthermore, the I think the good parts of Oliver were stolen from David Lean's version anyway. So, <laughs> I forgot he made one. Oh man, ah, we learn something new every day here. Um, but so you know, it should have been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, initially, before the conversation, before we can really hammer it home, are there other awards that 2001 should have been nominated for at the Oscars that year? Anything? None that I can think of. 
Yeah, no, no one's ever gonna claim that it's worthy of acting awards. Uh, I so. will, you know what? I will, I will disagree on the merits of time. I understand that. The, I understand that in 1968, you probably wouldn't have thought it was great, but I would love to give a either supporting actor nom or special honorary Oscar to Douglas Rain, who voiced Hal 9000, because I think that is one of the all-time great villains and uh, performances. And he, we, we don't even see his face, and he has to do everything with his voice, much like you are doing right now, Brian. <laughs> I, that, that's, that is correct, Dave. <laughs> yeah, what other insight may I offer on this film for you? That's so crazy. <laughs> Yay, so many insights. You've practiced this a little, haven't you? <laughs> this isn't your first time doing Hal. No, this is simply how I speak on an ordinary, everyday basis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, Douglas Rain is fantastic. You know, he uh, Kubrick actually found him by watching a documentary on space at the World's Fair. I think it was a Canadian-produced film, uh, and he was the narrator for that film. And uh, you know, Kubrick not only grabbed some of the special effects people who made that, but also grabbed Douglas Rain, the narrator. So you never know when That's Stanley Kubrick's going to see your film. <laughs> he's going to hear <laughs> yeah, he's just life. Gonna... Because Stanley Kubrick watched everything. Uh, oh, yeah. Dude is uh, a little obsessed. Just a bit. Uh, just a bit. Everything. Literally everything. <laughs> you know, and, and as far as acting, I suppose you could also say that Daniel Richter, uh, the uh, who played Moonwatcher, the, uh, the the sort of the main ape, uh, you know, could could arguably uh, be said to have given a you know, remarkable physical performance. In the okay, of... so the apes had names. This is not something I ever picked up on after watching the movie twice. Well, yeah, the the uh, the apes had in the book they had uh, they had names, but you know, if you don't, you don't one does not need to know the names in the in the actual movie because the at that time the... we didn't. Yeah, he's he, yeah he's the main one who who does who does all the does all the things. I believe uh, that uh, Planet of the Apes got uh, costuming that your your makeup that year because they assumed the apes in two thousand one were actually apes and therefore could not be qualified for yeah. the uh, for the award. And uh, it's it's a testament to how good let's say Daniel Richter is and the rest of the apes and. Kubrick's directing is that they were able to fool a lot of people because it's some, con it's some convincing ape work. I, yeah. was, I will say. I also, also Academy, <laughs> Academy voters not always the brightest when it comes to technical things. True. That's why it's, that's why it's usually the uh, it's usually the they the guilds themselves kind of vote on the on the various technical awards. Speaking of which, I will say cinematography. I know it's a very special effects heavy. Um, movie, but it deserved a, a, an eye for cinematography because all of this stuff is basically in camera. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, we don't have a computer generated screens. We have some of those like terrible ASCII, you know, panels. But for the most part, they're doing everything with, you know, just lighting and models and everything. And I think that. But it's amazing. It really, it's it's spellbinding, and I don't use that word lightly. No, 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 you do not. And finally, I know some people will probably disagree with me on this one. Best editing, uh, yes. I think this. Yes. Movie, yeah. like, is it? Will people say, "Oh, but it's long and slow"? I'm like, no. Almost, that, is, that is like kind of the point, and it's it's a brilliant. It's a it uses editing in such in in a way that because because of all the visuals, because it's a very visual movie. Not people don't really say a lot of things. It has to flow 
in a in ways that other more dialogue driven movies can't always get away with and i think that's very difficult and kubrick just makes it look like the easiest thing in the world. Uh, not to mention i mean the greatest match cut in history oh my god the the bone Ugh. the bone to the satellite you know yeah. arguably rivaled only by the uh the uh, blown out match and and uh, sunrise in Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, by the way, uh, shout out to Ann V Coates, editor of Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah, this week. Uh, a lot of things. Lawrence of Arabia, she did uh, most of the David Lean I mean, stuff, didn't she? Yes, yes. Oh, she a she lot, has a lot of things. She she was 89 years old, has a filmography as long as uh, as long as an ape's arm. But <laughs> back to 2001. Yeah. yeah. I, I do love that. I do love the match because I believe it's also the biggest uh, flash forward in cinema history as well. I can't, so, I can't imagine a, a more ambitious one. Yeah. Three million years. So uh, is there anything else? Any, any, any last, uh, you want, anyone want to take another shot at Oliver? Anyone want to add something to maybe it should have been nominated for costuming, et cetera, et cetera, or. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, because I think so. really, okay. because the thing is, 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 in studying what this was nominated for, was it? I saw the other stuff that was nominated that year. In really art direction, I'm thinking Romeo and Juliet. That's unbelievable. The costumes in that movie were unbelievable. So I'm not going to take it away from Romeo and Juliet. Okay, that's fair. Beautiful movie. Beautiful. Gorgeous, gorgeous movie. I, 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 I might, I might, but <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Well, when you consider that everything in this movie had to be imagined, like literally everything, there is not a single thing on screen aside from, I guess, some location shooting for the uh, the Dawn of Man sequence. But 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 every single other thing had to be conceived, created, and shot for the film. So that's a triumph of art direction. That is true. Yeah. That is very very true. Yeah. And we will definitely talk about the design work in the next segment because it is uh, very influential. And on that note, we are going to take a, another short break. And when we come back, we are finally going to dive in for what I hope is a very long discussion. Dang. My mind is going. I can feel it. Feel it. My mind is going. There is no question about it. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it. I'm afraid. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am a HAL 9000 computer. 
I became operational at the H.A.L. plant in Urbana, Illinois, on the 12th of January, 1992. My instructor was Mr. Langley, and he taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Yes, I'd like to hear it, Hal. Sing it for me. It's called Daisy. 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 Give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy. All for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a marriage. But you look Amy, since I've known you, I've always wanted to ask you this question. What is 2001 about? <laughs> Okay, I was, plot. Gonna, I was gonna, <laughs> my first response, which is a joke, is there's a monolith, mayhem ensues. <laughs> mayhem ensues. <laughs> or rather, there's a monolith, civilization ensues. Yeah. <laughs> Both are arguably true. <laughs> That's always my go-to answer, as our listeners at home always know. But... Yes. It's about life, time, space, evolution, betrayal, Things. aging really fast. <laughs> it's about the, the whole human condition, all that there ever was and ever will be. In, it's, it's, uh, and there's it's, a monolith and, there, and, and a crazy yes, computer. There are, in fact, uh, several monoliths, I, I, I believe. I believe they're all supposed to be separate. But either way, uh, yeah, it is one of those... It's one of those things you ask a thousand people, you'll get a thousand different answers for uh, what 2001 is about. What is the what is the main theme of 2001? What's it going at? And I think that's part of the allure some 50 years later that we're still talking about it because it's not just one thing. It's not just about this renegade computer. It's not just about this monolith. It's about all of these things. And in doing so, it becomes kind of about us and man's search for meaning in the cosmos that uh, I think any generation can really relate to. But we can certainly talk about the elements that happen in the movie. It's broken up into three, three and a half, four parts, depending. Uh, it begin, We will start from the beginning, a very good place to start, with the Dawn of Man sequence in... Uh, Primeval Africa, and one of some of the most gorgeous uh, camera work and location shooting I've ever seen. Uh, there are a group of monkeys, and what happens there, and why? What's it? What? What? What's? What's happening in the sequence? Anyone want to explain well, it? Here's and tell what me I that. got. <laughs> okay, here's what you got. All right, I'm, def I'm definitely okay. curious about this. And I took notes. Okay, so it starts off, and the apes are eating plants, and they're picking stuff off each other. 
Right. Then they do a crazy dance. <laughs> <laughs> then they hide in a cave, weird red sky. Then all of a sudden there's a monolith there, but you don't know. It's not called the monolith. I only got that because I had to read about it. Uh, they all go crazy. They all reach around to touch it. One ape looks at bones, realizes it can smash things. Did evolution cause, does it cause evolution? Now they're eating meat. The apes get crazy aggressive and kill that one ape. <laughs> Those very, were my notes. It's a very Cliff Notesy <laughs> version of that. <laughs> Like it's literally the bullet points of the things, but yeah, but you it's know what? how I have it written. <laughs> no, that's great. But cause you know why? Cause I, that's probably how it was written in like kind of written in the screenplay. I mean, not Kubrick's a, a madman. The screenplays are insane, insane to read, but you got all of that. You figure you, you kind of understood the flow of everything. And yet there is this movie doesn't have its first line of dialogue for 30 minutes thereabouts 10 minutes after 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 the apes have uh, have left essentially now uh has anyone seen there will be blood yes remember the remember the opening sequence it's just it's just daniel day lewis in a you know in a hole in, in, <laughs> in a hole and, it, in it, and it's quiet how what is it like because we're in we live in times where everything is so loud and we over explain everything how does this silent sequence of showing showing these apes learning something? How does that how does that how does that make you feel? I, I, I suppose like how does it make you feel in relation to how movies are nowadays where they have to overexplain and whatnot? I think it worked and it's very entertaining because there's constantly stuff going on. One thing that I did notice that I we kind of skipped ahead a little bit is when I was watching it on the DVD when the movie started there was two minutes and 58 seconds of darkness until the MGM shot came on. And then there was a long, like a couple of minutes darkness again. And I thought that is a very brave way to open a movie. Mm-hmm. They were getting With people just... into the seats at the time. Yeah. That, yes, was the, I... that was the overture, the overture for the sort of roadshow presentation. Yeah. But I just thought that that it's still interesting. Um, but there's definitely a story. I think that this sequence and the sequence with Hal were the easiest to follow. The first time I saw it, the hardest part was once they went up into space before you got into the Hal sequence, that little half a section that's still technically a part of the Donna Mancy sequence uh-huh. with uh, Haywood. Haywood Floyd. That part to me, the first time I saw it, was very confusing. Okay. So the Donna Man with the apes, I think that was the most straightforward portion of the movie, and so therefore you didn't really need any of the dialogue. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I adore visual storytelling. I, I appreciate the hell out of anyone who, uh, just with images and actors, uh, can tell a complete story. You know, I appreciate uh, you know people who can do that on stage, uh, and certainly those who can do it on film. Film is the ultimate visual medium, and uh, you know if you can strip away everything else and convey what needs to be conveyed with image alone uh, that 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 stands you a bit higher in my estimation as a filmmaker than someone who as you said of tom hooper just uh, sets the camera in front of the actors and lets them do their thing but not mind you I, I, I think tom hooper is a perfectly fine director uh but he's no stanley kubrick uh there's something about there's something about the uh lack of 
um, dialogue, and it's certainly not silent. Uh, there's lots of sound uh, happening in it, uh, but nevertheless, the um, the lack of somebody uh, there to explain it all for you says to you, stop, pay attention. This is important. And I think it engages you in a way that somebody just, you know, dumping all the exposition on you uh, would not. In fact, Arthur Clarke wrote a prologue uh, that would have uh, that would have set a bunch of this up and, and, and Kubrick just threw it all away. And I think that was the right choice. Yeah, good, good call on that. So um, with, with that in mind, so it's a story of, you know, this, this thing, thing arrives and then we're using tools and bad and then mayhem ensues. literally mayhem ensues. yes so uh, uh amy you were, you were you were texting me kind of like mad while you were watching this this is hilarious by the way i i, I enjoyed hearing your sort of off-the-cuff thoughts about what is, you know, what, is what is happening and, you know and I, and I appreciate that uh so what what is the monolith what is this big obsidian thing well, it makes everything around it speed up and evolve very quickly. Okay, evolve very quickly. Okay, so uh, bef okay, before the monolith, we have these monkeys scraping by. After the monolith, what happens? They get crazy aggressive and start using tools and basically weapons. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because he's using it. He's not using it to build something. He's using it and realizing it's destroying things and smashing things apart. And then he uses it to get into it with that one ape. He's, he's much like my daughter who just picks things up and smashes it on the, on the floor, as I'm sure you all are aware that this is kind of, kind of what we do. Um, I think uh, yes, but also a bit, uh, a, a bit of no, because I don't think the monkeys were I don't think it made the monkeys aggressive. I don't. I, th I think they were they were already like that. They were just powerless. Uh, I will say in the book, they talk about how the they sort of like show off, but they're so starving that they don't. It never it never goes beyond just like you know making themselves big and trying to and trying to essentially talk about it or like or or, or scare the other tribe off. But now with tools with this bone, we are able. They're able to actually exert more of an influence and power because they you know are eating meat and eating meat leads to you know higher brain functions and it's sort of all all spirals so what the monolith does or what i think i think it represents it's a it's a this thing that was seeded by these unknown unknowable alien beings and it it yeah it, it speeds up it jump starts this one little thing because it jump starts tools and uh, I think it would be safe to say that this movie is essentially it's about man's relationship with machines from the first, which is just a bone tool used for breaking things on up to, uh, and this is where the, this is where the, 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 the cut comes in, the match cut begins, where it is the tool, this one, the first weapon turn, you know, flies up into the air and comes down as a nuclear missile silo that's hanging in low earth low earth orbit mm -hmm. um yeah and, and uh and but and it makes it makes an interesting point because it, it's somewhat biblical because we get essentially the first murder we have the a an even more allegorical cain and abel story uh and it uh, it sort of primes you for the sins of um 
the sins of machinery and how man man uses that and how it will like kind of destroy them but also they they need it to work uh they need the tools to get to the next level if they ever hope to reach the skies and find their creators it is a damning equation of civilization and murder mm-hmm. it, it it inextricably ties those two elements together because as soon as they make the leap to using tools the first thing they do with it other than killing an animal is killing another uh, arguably human at that point right. a, a hominid and then you know smash cut you know three million years into the future where you know we are at at each other's throats on the brink of perpetual nuclear war see stanley kubrick's previous film dr strangelove for more on that <laughs> um uh, but then also uh, you know how the tools we create um we can we almost can't help but use them to destroy each other even as we reach out for new and further understanding um you know we create a tool that um you know in how that uh contains all of our darkest impulses even as it uh, enables uh, our reaching out for greater understanding mm-hmm. um, so it's uh, an <clears throat> uncomfortably um, close examination and uh, accusation I think of um, of humanity in that uh, we just we just can't seem to help ourselves uh, we, we, we just we murder it's what we do right. and is it and is it any surprise when one of those tools says uh-uh i'm going to kill you instead yeah it's, you know, to like, enable to enable its own survival and its own evolution right it's uh and kubrick says all of this with that one cut mm-hmm. just it it's it's beautiful I, it's an absolutely brilliant uh brilliant smash cut the book explains, you know, Arthur. Books great. Books are great for explaining things, but Clark explains what I feel is too much, and it ruins sort of this primal. I will use it again, a biblical sense of how light started and how you know civilization sprang up, not because we're the smartest, but we became the smartest because we used tools, and that's and that's that that helped speed up our evolution, and that's what the monolith was, monolith was there for. To help, uh, to help undergo that transformation, because you'll remember when Moonwatcher, the main ape, he's you know just picking at some bones. He remembers, or yeah, either remembers, or he is standing in the shadow of the monolith itself, and that sort of, mm-hmm. and it's a like sort of like in a half eclipse, and that's when he like gets the notion he's inspired by this this unknowable thing, this, this being, this angel from heaven. To do the to do, do this one thing, and then by the time we conquer, and voila, we're off we're off into space, and so we we cut away from Donna Man. Uh, There's also just a great a great thing to just look at. It's, it's beautiful, and we move on to the uh, the docking sequence set to um, Richard Strauss's Blue Danube, which. Uh, this is no, wrong, wrong Strauss. Oh, sorry. Wrong Strauss. Sorry. Richard Strauss wrote the title music. It was Johann Strauss. Johann Strauss. Thank you. I remember. I was always <laughs> annoyed by that. This is always one of my, I think my, like I like the sequence, but in the terms of how all how the movie is structured, it's my like least favorite sequence. But that's like, saying like it's the you, one no one ever talks about. Right. But it's also the it's also the one where 
Kubrick is having a lot of fun because this is where we see him like introduce he's introducing the world of 2001 he's envisioning a world 50 40 years in the future however many years 40 30 something years in the future and so he has to establish everything we establish the the, the space station we still I, I love the little grippy velcro shoes that the yes. the stewardesses uh i'm sorry the flight attendants have for uh for this and it it all feels so utterly believable in in that and he just and he just says you know i'm just going to take the time this dude haywood floyd he's flying solo on a plane up to the moon base and then to the moon and you're just gonna you're gonna sit back and hang out with him it's so much fun to watch and set to the music it's, it's great i was wondering how, uh, how, how you guys feel about that is it is it does it seem like kubrick lingers too long no on, on, on this stuff no i don't think so i think again the first time i saw it there's so much and the first time i saw it was really only maybe less than a year ago mm -hmm. so you're like a sponge and you're trying to pay attention to everything and they okay. speak in those very quiet voices and so you're like wait mm -hmm. what i hear what did I miss? What's going on? But also, and I'm guessing upon seeing it several times, is I love the fact that as as futuristic as it is, it is also very 1960s oh, yeah. when they have <laughs> at the airport when they have a Howard Johnson. Yes, Hojo. Yes. yes. <laughs> I think uh, you know, as prophetic as so much of that film was, the 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 things that aged uh, the worst were the assumption that Pan American Airlines and Howard Johnsons were still going to be around in two thousand one. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, I thought that, but it it didn't seem like oh, but not in a bad way. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh, Hojo's, <laughs> Orange Sherbert. Um, that I thought was really cool. The one thing that I thought was um interesting that again when she's walking and she's got those gripped shoes but the way that she's moving is so as if she's on a spacecraft mm -hmm. which makes it seem so much more believable than just oh this is a set in a studio or wherever they filmed it you know what i'm saying so when she's just walking down with the meals and she still seems like she's trying to kind of balance herself all of those little tiny things that you don't think about and you don't even really notice unless you're about to do a podcast for it really are what make that whole all of the space sequences believable yeah it, for me absolutely yeah in in so many science fiction movies even even star wars they just have anti-grav and you just take it for granted so like yeah of course the people are they're just walking around normal on the millennium falcon even though that you just like is physically impossible they would still be unsteady yeah. somehow yeah, yeah. And, and this like that slight lur lurking and uh i believe kubrick hired <sighs> insane amount of you know scientific advisors for this one to be like how carl would, sagan yeah, how would you actually walk on the like if you're if you're in low earth orbit or you know there's no gravity whatsoever how would you walk well you like why don't we just have grippy shoes and you, you're kind of yeah. unsteady it's these little touches that make you feel as though you are watching and you're inside this world that has been very realized we're not just doing science fiction for the sake of science fiction we're doing science fiction because this is important to the story even the even the video call from haywood to his daughter it's she, skype it's totally it's skype. skype i'm like they nailed oh they got that one they nailed the that. Back of the seats and the tvs on the back of the seats 
I mean, mm-hmm. it's that, all that is super, is real. And, uh, you know, with anything like that, uh, when you have something that's a, a cultural landmark that's so influential, you have to wonder, was it prophetic or did the tail wag the dog? And, and somebody <laughs> saw that and said, aha, we need that. Right. Yeah, I mean, so uh, talk to any of the, uh, the astronauts from the 60s and 70s, and they'll say so much of 2001 was an influence on them. And it's yeah. just discovery, and they have the music going. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's... You know, tail, tail, tail wagging the dog. But the, the one thing I do I, I, that does annoy me is I look at this, you know, now in 2018. I'm like, what the fuck? Why don't we have space stations? Like, you sons of bitches in the 70s. We went, it wasn't about, it was never about going to the moon. It was about beating the Russians. And now we don't have moon bases. We don't have any of this cool shit. We can't just fly commercial up to some gorgeous space station. We got some 20-year-old hunk of junk in the ISS hanging out barely out of earth orbit like what the, like come on yes stupid boomer yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. All, we, all, all we can do is wait around for elon musk to enable uh you know space travel for the very rich to uh be able to, to go up for a you know a couple of million bucks it's right it's, it's sad our abandonment of yeah. uh the it is sad. hope of space exploration and my husband wrote, I mean, like legitimately wrote a letter to Senator Lindsey Graham being saying that, saying it's sad that we used to be ahead because people now just have no value on the space program. And he said so many people are like, yeah, we don't really need to. And he's like, it's not just about that. It's about you want things that are good for the economy. Look at the technology that comes about from doing all these things. Like it's good for so much more than just space travel, but space travel itself is so magnificent that it's sad. (laughs) It made me love him more when he wrote actually, and he got a letter back. So I was like, Oh, one of the things one of the things about the film, though, is that you, you know, it is it is magnificent, but it's 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 hilarious what Kubrick does with that sequence as well. Because you know, when you think about it, it's a miracle that we can get in a metal tube and and uh, you know be on the other side of the country in four hours. But uh, you know, we're we're all you know sticking our iPods in uh, our, our earphones in and, and looking at our iPads uh, for the whole flight. And you know, Floyd's doing exactly the same thing. You know, right. all these little in jokes about how just utterly banal space travel is. It's like, oh yeah, fine, I've done this a million times, and I'm falling asleep on the. As, I, as I'm watching the miracle of the Earth rising before me, I'm just <laughs> snoozing while a dumb video plays. Like, I, I even noticed this when I was taking a look at a few scenes last night. I think what's playing on the back of the chair in front of um, Floyd is like a future car commercial. Oh, really? Take a look at, take a look at that again. Oh, and, I'll have uh, to take and it see out. what you think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, Kubrick, run, Kubrick has this very difficult job of having to pay you know, pay lip, you know, not, not lip service. He has to make space so awe inspiring that it's like just a beautiful thing. So you have the blue Don you playing. You just, it's this like ethereal kind of thing that like we can touch, but we can never really have, but you also, you have to deal with the nuts and bolts of how the fuck do you get to space? Like, Oh, you like, you have a rotating spaceship. You have, Mm -hmm. you know, all the, you have like, how do you, how do you eat the food? How do you get around? He has to deal with all of these things, and he it never goes one way or the other during the sequence, uh, at at the least. And you you're just left with this, man. I w- I want to live in a day when I can just be so bored by going to space, I fall asleep. Like that's the world I want to live in. That sounds great. Why why are we <laughs> seventeen years after two thousand one? Why aren't we even close to it yet? Uh, it's even still 
while we're he's showing off this world, he does drop in hints of the plot because there's still a plot to be had. There's uh, something Absolutely. happening up at the Clavius base, and it's so matter of fact that you're like, what is like? I don't even know. Like he's you know you have Haywood Floyd, uh, the great William Sylvester, talking to these a bunch of Russian uh, scientists, which also hilarious. We got the, conversing with the Russians in 2001. Uh, and there's uh, this, so there's something happening. There's been a quarantine at a moon base. Nobody knows why. It's very tight-lipped. Haywood seems to be the top dog. He's the head of the National Space Council, I believe. So he's there to just over oversee things. But it, it establishes this little mystery. Like, like I don't remember. What, like, what I saw at the Dawn of Man was freaky. So what is happening right now? And it turns out, after a very long brilliant sequence and going to the moon which still looks great uh there is another monolith that was buried under the moon under the moon surface some three million years ago it's the first sign of intelligent life in the universe and amy take it away what happens <laughs> i think i texted you at this point saying <laughs> wait is that the same monolith how many monoliths are there many Did monoliths travel? there need to be magic um, the monolith is on the moon and all the men come off the craft and they all go down and they all spread around it. And it's, it's majestic to watch. Yeah. yeah that, that eerie music playing. And it's, it's sort of a, almost, uh, it's a, it's a similar it's, scene yeah. to, uh, the monkeys cause they all crowd yes. around it and Haywood reaches out his hand and touches it. And Again, but in that very like he's in space, slow kind of way. Right. But also, but also he's like he's touching something that is so outside of the experience of man. And you know, we think we're top dogs. We're like, oh, of course we've seen everything. It's fine. But here is a thing that should not. Here is touching something that is literally could be God, for all we know, and for all, all intents and purposes in the movie, it kind of is. So he's he's paying it reverence and just. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I just I just I just love that as a you know as a scientist I think and in the book he has multiple degrees or something like that he is still he can still be kind of in awe of this and they take a photo and the the next major plot point happens there is a powerful blast of sound and then we immediately cut to the Jupiter mission which is Yay. I believe the section of the film one of one of two sections of the film that people really remember about 2001 jupiter mission we are on board the discovery spacecraft en route to jupiter uh, where astronauts uh dave bowman and frank Poole are in charge of the ship uh, alongside the hal 9000 unit which we learn is called hal uh, first thing I want to get out of the way is the uh, I do like Kubrick's use of exposition here. The only time he really like overly kind of explains himself, and even then I I think it's kind of hilarious. He does a an, in, an interview with the astronauts on BBC, which is so clever. It's, it's so clever. It's it's very clever. But at the same time, I was wondering a, I was thinking first, this interviewer should be fired. These are terrible questions, especially when you have a seven-minute time delay between your your question and the the answer. So get to the point. Stop talking about the cryostasis. I understand why you need to talk about the cryostasis. And B, Frank and Dave missed out on some hilarious practical joking, I think. Because if you have a delay, 
why don't you wear a funny hat? Why don't you switch? switch why don't you just do? Why don't you just fuck with them just a but little I, bit? <laughs> I'm like because I understand they're astronauts and they're very good at their job, but it would have been so much fun. That's just my that's my personal gripe. I would have done something, but then then I would never be in charge of a multi billion liked, dollar mission to Jupiter. I liked that the interview was <clears throat> wasn't really front and center though. It wasn't like they clipped and it was a close up of the interview, like while it was happening, that it was hint, that it was um, Bowman going around doing his business and kind of having the interview on in the background. Yeah, yeah. That was very clever, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Giving you a slice of life of the discovery. Uh, yeah, and I think I think I think both the the sort of the inane nature of the uh, of the interviewer and um, you know Frank and uh, uh, Frank and Dave's uh, you know just sort of lack of any identifiable personality are all are all kind of the point there you know the uh, uh, Frank and Dave they're they're nearly indistinguishable uh, just uh, generic square jawed white astronaut guys yep. um, and that's part of the point you know they have. Um, yeah, they they're you know astronauts, so presumably sort of the 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 best humanity has to offer, and they're these uh, you know sort of uh, almost soulless automatons. And the bulk of the interview, who's talking? How? Yeah. So you know that 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 introduces us to the idea that okay, maybe we're on to something that even the astronauts haven't figured out yet. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Hal, so we have to talk about him. You're the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Putting Doesn't that matter on which one's which. Profile. Let's talk about Hal. Voiced by Douglas Rain, who I definitely think should have earned a, a sort of award nomination for this. Uh, he, let's talk about his voice first and then his design. How could they... Do you think Cooper could have predicted how iconic... Hal's voice was when he made this movie back in 19, back in the 50s. I don't think so. And he, and the thing is, I think the first time I heard it, I it was watching one of the AFI specials where Hal got one of the villains of all time, like 13 mm-hmm. or something. And ours was, I thought it was the actor William Daniels, the guy, the <laughs> Knight Rider voice. <laughs> <laughs> because again, there's that very calm, Almost nurse, it kind of also reminded me of like a Nurse Ratched voice. And I thought, wow, imagine Nurse Ratched and Hal doing a, uh, like a podcast or something where they'd both be like, hello, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> and how strange that would be. But like I said, I had a lot of random thoughts while watching yesterday. I don't think so because I don't feel, I don't think Hal's supposed to be an iconic voice, but he is anyway. Because he's kind of the first voice. He's the, 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 he's the first Siri or Alexa. Yes. Well, it's, I think, you know, and, and I'd have to, I'd have to really go back and interrogate the, uh, the history of uh, sci-fi robot and computer voices. But uh, we were very deeply in the mode still of assuming that a computer voice would sound like, uh, you know, Robbie the robot or the computer from Star Trek. Uh, although I think the later iterations of the computers from Star Trek were, it, it were influenced by Hal. And if you listen to the the, first, the old Star Trek, you know the, the computer is very much sounds like this. You know it, it's that 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 stereotypical robot uh, voice, and this is just um, it's a it's a human sounding voice, but it's so um, calculatedly bland as to you know you uh, you recognize that there's something not quite human about it. Right. And I think that that's sort of the brilliant stroke of it. 
Does it make it? it does it make Hal's voice terrifying? That sort of yes. That sort of like it's on the uncanny valley. Well, yes, yes, because I think um, it's going to be hard to go out there without your helmet on, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know he never says anything with any inflection, and yet it all has an inflection to it. At least, at least while he's while he's still fully operational, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's so great. Uh, did anyone notice the uh, what the shape of Hal is? Besides besides the red eye, the red eye, which is obviously a dead giveaway for something is wrong with this. But the the shape of the shape of his his uh, terminals. Hmm. Yeah, you you, you got me on this one. <laughs> Don't they kind of look like a monolith? You know, it does have that sort of vertical rectangular shape to it. So there, there is something that I had not identified yeah. yet. So I, I would not be surprised well if they, if it was done in the same uh, one by four by nine proportions, as, or one by three by nine, whatever it is, proportions of of the actual monolith. Yes, kind, of, kind of bring, bring me, because you know, because because as we talked about, Hal is a he's a tool. He's a he's a machine, a very advanced machine. Uh, is Hal con- is Hal actually conscious? Or is he, or he, or is he, as uh, Frank or Dave says, just mimicking? I think. I'm let Brian take this. <laughs> conscious, yes. Whether he has as much of a personality as he seems to is arguable. Um, you know, he has certainly learned how to simulate emotion and how to manipulate uh, the others into doing what he wants to do. Um, you know, was there actually a malfunction on that unit outside, or was that just a pretext that he used to to get Frank uh, to uh, to go outside the vehicle uh, to give him the opportunity to kill him? Um, and at the end, is he afraid, as he says he is, or is he simply resorting to a uh, manipulative tactic to try to get uh, Dave to do what he wants? I'm not sure there's a clear answer to that. It seems more dramatically interesting if you suppose that maybe he has developed some uh, some kind of emotion along the way. Um, but uh, the fact that we debate that about him, but uh, but not similarly about the uh, the astronauts, also says a little more about um, where the uh, where the film's thinking is on uh, what constitutes uh, consciousness and humanity. I, had, I hadn't I hadn't considered that maybe it was just a manipulation at the end. I think. You know, there was a part of him, however developed, that he did actually, he was actually afraid of being, being shut down. In the, I, I'm going to go back to the book. In the book, he says, you know, he's never been, he's never been asleep. So he doesn't know on his own level that, you, well, you can wake up again after, mm-hmm. afterwards. And I think he does wake up in the sequel, 2010. But, yes. Uh, the, and another endlessly debated topic uh, regarding Hal is why does Hal attempt to kill everybody? on the ship amy do you have a, 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 i always i always thought it was to save himself and one th- other thing that i thought was interesting is if he has no personality yet yeah, and and he has to be conscious somehow because he knows to be suspicious of frank and dave uh-huh yeah that, that when they're in that pod that instead of just you know doing your job and just sitting there or whatever that he is zeroing in on their mouths and going back and forth, realizing they're talking and knowing they're talking about me, they're plotting against me. So he, he has that feeling of suspicion, which again, for a machine, not really supposed to be suspicious. Right. Mm. 
But good, where did, good, good point. Yeah. Where did but it, ha, it it almost happens earlier because you know we see we we have the the famous lip reading scene, which uh, is so well shot. I oh, mean, it's it's, it's it's great. It's great. Been been using many many other things, but but even before that, he's talking with. He's talking with Dave about the mission and how strange the mission is that these three other doctors were put on board before, you know, in cryostasis already, which is not usually protocol. And isn't isn't that weird? He's, he's sussing out Dave, trying to see if Dave understands something. And that's when mm-hmm. he says, just a moment, just a moment, there's a failure yes. on the AE35 unit. And uh, so, like, that's real. That's That's literally the moment where Something in Hal goes wrong. Who's mm-hmm. had a perfect operational record until then? He'll tell you <clears> much. And uh, I was wondering, do you, do you know? Do you know why that? Why that is, Amy or or Brian or Brian? I I really wasn't sure. I love that scene. I think it's fascinating because in some ways, is it the computer having doubts, or is he trying to plant seeds of doubt in Dave? Like which which way is he going with it? Are these legitimate doubts, or hey, do you feel like this is strange, or is it, or is he trying to plant the seeds and trying to make Dave doubt what's going on and kind of throw him off track? Mm-hmm. And I love that scene because I think you can watch it either way, and it's never totally clear. I, I think there's an interesting something that just occurred to me is the idea that. Um, when it goes back to what Hal is supposed to be, uh, Hal stands for heuristic algorithmic, uh, as defined by Arthur Clarke. So, uh, by the way, it's an urban legend that H A L is I B M one letter down. Although it's an, an interesting coincidence, um, but uh, heuristic algorithmic is a computer science term that, uh, to grandly oversimplify it, essentially means he's a learning machine. Right. You can say, you so say he's eight hundred. Uh, also that. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, James Cameron, another guy seriously influenced by Kubrick. Um, but uh, so the idea is that he's he's learning. He's been imbued with curiosity, and um, you know, perhaps perhaps the tr- the malfunction is triggered by the fact that his curiosity has gotten the better of him. He started questioning something that he wasn't supposed to question. Suddenly, something snaps. Which also goes back to the biblical idea you mentioned, Steve, because, of course, in the Bible, curiosity was our original sin. That's true. Oh, there you go. And Hal, Hal does have a sort of apple-ish color and shape to him. Had not heard yes. of that. I think his motives for killing people come from the destiny, which we'll get to. At the very end, there is the message from Haywood Floyd saying, yo, guys. There's some shit going on in Jupiter. This is why you're really here. And Hal, being the the source of the ship, he knows all of this. And because he's a he's a learning computer, he, and he thinks of himself as kind of the third man. He's um, almost human. But there's one thing Hal's never learned to do, and that is to lie. Hal was supposed to keep this message, this the true intent of the mission, a secret from Dave. And Frank, and so so him asking Dave, like, what doesn't this seem all weird? Is kind of, is almost it's almost like when you have something that you know you need to tell, you you don't want to say it outright. You see, you're poking at the person you need to tell. Be like, hey, 
would, guys, wouldn't it be weird if like there was a, oh. if there was a monolith in space and we had to go there? Like, <laughs> be like just just like hypothetically, but like it does so, it's not really happening. But seriously, seriously. So he may be explicitly limited by his programming from outright telling them, but that doesn't stop him necessarily from you know trying to uh, give them a trail of breadcrumbs. Right, right, yeah. He he's trying to lure them, and I think I I think maybe at one point he does, you know, he to correct the error of this of this conflicting program, he has to remove one of the variables, which is the human component. Because if you have it's the it's the classic three men can keep a secret if two of them are dead situation. You know, I, I don't I don't need to feel bad about this because the other three guys who I'll just wake up already know this stuff. And I'll just uh, and I'll I'll kill off uh, you know, I'll kill off these two and it'll be fine, except the humans fight back in a twist of the tool the tool metaphor. Now the you know now man is trying to destroy the tools that he used, which initially he you know is the other way around. And so now I'm just gonna kill everybody because they're they're all trying to destroy me. And so my prime directive, which is to survive that's kind of the nature of life really that's the our basic instinct is to survive has now kicked in and i'm going to i'm going to do that however however i can it's uh it's it's endlessly fascinating and it's not always it's subtle and i love being able to talk about it and hear your hear your thoughts on on why hal is the way it is because when i first saw it i was like why is this computer like this computer is going crazy because I think in the in the screenplay it said this computer has to go crazy and kill everybody and that's that and it's 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 a it's a fascinating conversation and about a very fascinating character and yes you're absolutely right Hal is the most interesting character in the movie despite not being human and that's another testament to both uh, Douglas Rain the voice actor and Stanley Kubrick for creating such a, a memorable villain and memorable creation I, I i think even now and on you can change your your phone's voice to be that of hal and i wouldn't recommend it because that sounds terrifying <laughs> but, uh, you know, yes i you know it's interesting that that you were you know we're talking about you know just just constantly this link between uh you know killing and uh you know humanity uh because it, you know arguably by placing dave in a life or death struggle he awakens dave's own humanity dave has uh, shows much more character and personality once he's forced to confront uh, a homicidal robot than he does in anything prior uh, and he drives Dave to murder, which is, you know, the imminent trigger of his next evolutionary step. Right. And that's, and that leads him to the monolith outside. But before that, uh, Amy, I, you know, I texted you when I, after I'd just seen this movie that, <laughs> that Hal's death sequence is phenomenal. And you actually agree that it's the best sequence in the, in the, in the film. And I actually, I honestly, I can't, I can't argue with that. There's something about this guy floating into this giant circuit room and just just removing things. But what is it about the sequence uh, that, that, that Amy, that you think is so great? Well, seeing this, I'm going to call him a creature. Sure. That when we're introduced to him is just this computer. And unlike robots and other movies, it's not like R2-D2 or um, 
C-3PO, where it kind of looks like a person. Um, it is. It's just part of the ship yeah. and a light. And he is the ship. He is the ship. So it's not like it's a robot with human characteristics, except for the voice. And so he seems very cold, very calculated. But then he's begging for his life. And it does. It's very moving because even as you've seen him kill and continue to maintain that almost, I don't want to say callous, aloofness, indifference, it's still frightening when he calls him Dave, Dave. And he's be he's begging for his life. And so all of a sudden you find yourself moved by this machine and it's really a testament to everybody who made the film. It's it's incredibly tense too, even though everything is moving so slowly. It's just you're you're, you're just biting your fingernails the whole time. It's, it's it makes the hair stand on your head. It's it's such an intense sequence. And 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 for for Dave too, you look at his face and he is struggling with this. You know, perhaps more than anything he's ever encountered before in his life. Yeah, yeah, because you know he's kind of he's also you know when you shut the, when you shut Hal down, you kind of shut the ship down. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it's not just like he's yanking a cord out of the wall and then it's over it's right. there's no there's no unplugging and then plugging it back in and hoping oh everything's fine with hal now and when yep. he sings uh this is the only time i think i've ever heard daisy the song and mm. it's the only it's the only version i ever want to hear when interesting he start, when he starts singing that it's just the the saddest thing i talked about i talked about there's this, I talk about like the patheticness of death in Cimarron earlier with, uh, with Isaiah or, you know, even, even Tom Hanks screaming at Wilson where there's this powerlessness about the situation. You can't do anything about it. So all you do is you just, you just hurt. And that's what, that's what I feel with Hal singing Daisy. He's just, he's just hurting. He's because there's nothing, you know, despite being all, all powerful, he's sucked the air out of the, out of the ship already but you know dave got got around that so there's like literally nothing he can do now he doesn't have arms to manipulate he can't he can't do anything else he's he's stuck there and this guy has gone into his mind and is slowly one by one one little you know ship at a time ending him it's like yeah and it's it's so like i like i feel i feel for dave having to do this because like, I want Dave to survive. I also want Hal to survive because that it's it's a tough tough ending, even for a homicidal robot who has conflicting orders. And but at the same time, you go, well, who made that homicidal robot? Like we did, and you know, it's about it's about tools, and you know, we are destined. Like this was. This was always supposed, always going to happen. We're going to have a tool rebel against us, and we're going to have to fight it off. And maybe we win, maybe we don't. And this time we we do win. And did Stephen Hawking make a warning about that in his life? Uh, about, about aliens? He made one about aliens. I'm sure he made plenty. Of not, not about aliens, but just about um alter alternative um. I can't think. AI. Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. Mm. I'm sure he did. That they asked yeah. a robot or something like that. Like, do you believe in God? And the robot's like, I am God. And that like, mm. 
That sounds more like a Ray Kurzweil kind of idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Singularity and whatnot, yeah. Interesting point I about Daisy, wrong, That's though. what it made me think of. Um, the, uh, even that is a, a throwback to early computer science. Um, it was a very popular song in like the turn of the century. Uh, but uh, you know, in the late 50s, when Bell Labs was experimenting with synthetic voices, that was the first thing they got a computer to do, to simulate a human voice. Because songs are easy, because they emphasize vowels, and that's uh, you know, what they could do at the time. If you, if, you, if you search for it, you can find online the original recording of an artificial computer voice singing Daisy. It sounds very much like, uh, if you remember what a speak and spell sounds like. Uh, it's kind of, kind of like that. <laughs> kind of like that, that kind of sound. Uh, so it's sort of um, it's sort of like doing the factory reset on Hal, and he just reverts to this most basic possible thing he could do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it's, and it's a childhood life. song. Yeah, yes, it's, it it's is. a very happy, and it's a happy little childhood mm-hmm. song. He re- yeah, he retreats to a younger state. That's we, I think we, we he, devolves. he devolves. He yes. There you go. He devolves. Hal has been turned off. Dave unlocks the message from Haywood about there's a, there's a we found something on the moon. It sent a message to Jupiter. That's why you're actually here. And then Dave uh, leaves the discovery because outside the ship there is a floating monolith, uh, a giant floating monolith. Uh, and it is the time of some great solar alignment. And that's when the Fun begins. Now, guys, don't worry. I'm not a narc. Have you ever gotten high and watched the Stargate sequence? No. I haven't, but people I know have. Okay. What, uh, what, what was their experience? They may or may not have been in the same room with me at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and their experience was incredible. Well, considering uh, that the second time I saw the movie was yesterday during my prep period, so I was no, I was not getting high watching it yesterday oh, right. yeah I don't, I don't, you're at school you're at school you, you shouldn't confess to that wink, no wink. <laughs> <laughs> sad to say i haven't either um okay amy second time what is happening in this in this sequence this is my interpretation of it which again i have not studied nor seen the film as much as either of you I got, I mean, it's this wild ride through space and time and there's lights flashing. And that's the part that I think if you were in the theater would just blow you away. I believe Like is. literally like jaw dropped, actual physical reaction, clenching onto your, the seats, the handles on your seat, leaning forward, just going on that wild ride. Yeah. And then there's a room and it's it's like Dave's watching himself but it's like speeding up his life right the thing that killed me about the room and I said this to my husband when we first watched it is although a clockwork orange had not come out yet it looked like it looked like Kubrick took that and then used it in a clockwork orange because that's all that the, the set decoration the weird statues every single thing about it was very Kubrick and ultra modern and it shows the old man in the bed and there's the monolith at the end of the bed they are, they are. he's a fetus ah, again okay, yeah. well, yes 
But we'll talk about that. You, you asked will. me what we did. Oh, yeah, so. no, yeah, no, you, you did. I guess I was asking more about the, 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 the trippy sequence itself. Uh, has the imagery of the actual Stargate sequence held up in the fifth year? I think a thousand percent. That's the part that I think holds up the most in the entire movie. Brian? Uh, I think most of it does. There are, there are a couple of uh, scenes where, uh, you know, there are a couple of obvious places where they've uh, just taken some photographs of, uh, of like, uh, you know, flying over certain landscapes and changed the colors that, uh, that, that you know, don't exactly uh, blow the mind. But all the slit-scan technology that Douglas Trumbull invented uh, for this with the, just the swirling colors, you're, you're venturing into just pure abstraction for about five minutes. And um, it is just breathtaking. Uh, to behold, and yes, I think uh, I think it holds up. I think that portion of it does hold up because it's not trying to be any specific thing. You know, it, it, it's um, one of the cleverest things about this film is they they avoid they avoid a lot of the things that would date it. Uh, or otherwise make it easier to criticize by suggesting rather than directly presenting things. Uh, which is exactly what is happening in the in the uh, travel through the Stargate. You're not seeing planets whizzing by. You're not, uh, you know, obviously traveling through the stars. You're seeing this something that is uh, inconceivable, uh, you know, to the human mind, and just a uh, presentation of um, how incredibly overwhelming and um, awe-inspiring uh, this uh, alien means of travel is to Dave. You're seeing its effect more than what it actually is. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's it's again a lichen. You know, he Kubrick stripped away the the plot to the barest minimum to give you. I think Kubrick just really wanted to bring you to church, whether you believed in God or not. God of mm -hmm. any kind, he wanted to give you the the feeling of overwhelming awe and beauty and mm -hmm. this this thing where even if you see it you can never possibly in a thousand lifetimes understand what is happening there it's just so uh timeless you're you're seeing like the universe as 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 it actually is not just how we in our puny three or four dimensions understand it it's this is a grand cosmic thing and he does it all without computers which is which i think is really why it is held up so much so many things even star wars at times looks a little dated because there are you know computer elements here and there this is all in camera they're using lights they're using dyes and water and color to create something as you say abstract that even I, I look at it now and I'm even more impressed by how well it is considering the limitations of technology that they were forced to contend with and how they just got got around that and went ahead anyways with it. It's they they invented the technology to do it. Yes. Yeah. They and, and then they inspired literally everyone else who's ever made a science fiction movie to take that ball and run with it and oh yeah i you know i don't you know despite all of the great the great entries in the science fiction canon and there are many in the yeah. last 50 years this 
think still stands at the top of them for being the progenitor of science fiction does not have to be this campy 1950s atomic which is what it was yeah which which is is what it was and i think that that's the thing i mean and my dear old friend brian will tell you this sci-fi is not my genre Mm -hmm. it is not my genre but i do know that like if you look at what was coming out at the time it was schlocky and silly and tinny and done on the cheap and and it was silly but this I, I was trying to think of how to describe this movie, and I really think it's one of the few movies, and I love movies, that it's not so much a film as that you watch. It's more like an experience that you go through. Mm-hmm. And there's really, and I can't think of any other movies right now, but there's very, very few movies that I would ever describe that way. Because it is, it's an experience. It's sight. It's sound. You feel, you feel that when you hear them breathing, it's like you feel like you're out there with them. And then you find out it was made in the '60s, and you're like, seriously? Before man was on the moon, like (laughs) it's un. That's really what hits with this movie for me. Yeah, definitely. We're we're almost done, as you say. Anyway, we are in this very odd house, this hotel-looking thing. And Dave sees himself going, living, living life. He's uh, he's a man ascendant. He is the only human in the history of creation to get to where these beings, whatever they may be, whoever they may be, want him to be. He's there, and we see him dying. And uh, once again, the monolith is present, uh, as it was when. Man first took his first steps into the world of intelligence and civilization. So too is the monolith at this 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 man, this this emblem, this symbol of all of all humanity is there is there at its end. And then there's a baby. It's 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 a it's a very quick cut. I forgot how quick it was. It's like Dave's dying. There's a monolith, and then boom, baby, and it's just sitting there. Uh, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on what is going on with the star child. I can give you a big, I don't know on that one. I, the first time I watched it and then I was listening to something about it later on and they were talking about aliens and I said, there were aliens there. Mm-hmm. I really, that's the part of the movie. And I admit it. I don't know. I have not figured that one out. Okay. Brian. It is the next stage of evolution of humanity. Um, although I'm not necessarily comfortable letting it sit at a literal level like that. Uh, the, uh, the, the ending of the Clark book is, is, is pretty explicit about that, that, it is, that this is a new being that is testing its powers. And quite chillingly, um, it suggests that the first test of its powers would be to set off all the nuclear weapons on Earth. Yeah, uh, no, it sets uh, off all the nuclear weapons in space as a way of getting... Oh, in space, in yes. Space. Not, not on Earth. He just, he just clears the sky. Right. It's it's been probably thirty years since I uh, read that book, or you know, close to. Uh, so I might have missed a couple of details here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am, um, and, and again, I I love that. Um, I love that this is uh, suggested because I don't think it necessarily has to be literally a giant fetus floating in space. Um, it. it 
the positioning of that image with the alignment of the planets uh, as as suggested from the very beginning of the film um, is, uh, is is elemental. It is I'm not quite allegorical, but certainly symbolic. Um, and uh, and whatever it is, it doesn't have to be literal to be to be meaningful to me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. In the, it makes sense in the way that Star, Star Child makes sense. Uh, again, an, un, an unknowable thing that is yeah. very powerful. You sense that, uh, and they mentioned, he mentions it in the sequel, something wonderful has come. Mm -hmm. and yes. Is, is, hap is happening. And, you know, perhaps man had gone as far as he could mm -hmm. go. And this is what we needed. And what that means in the larger scale of the cosmos, I'm not sure, but it ends on such an ambiguous note that I'm just dying to find out. Although I do understand when I think Rock Hudson said, what the fuck is this movie about? <laughs> what is going on? I, 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 get, I get the criticism oh, of the people who want maybe something a little more uh, succinct and tied up in a, in a nice bow. I'm like, I, I totally get that. Sometimes open-ended movies infuriate me. Mm -hmm. the well, when they're not done well, they they infuriate me. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. When they're not when they're done, like two thousand one, it becomes a conversation that you can have fifty years later and still feel something and still discover something new about yeah. it. That uh, and that's what makes it uh, to me, uh, Amy. I will I will I will say it's probably at least top three on the Stephen Buja top one hundred. <laughs> Uh, I can't be entirely Likewise. sure, but it's definitely it's definitely in, it's the top it's top tier filmmaking. Um, it's my favorite Kubrick movie, and I'm but I'm just a big sci-fi junkie uh, in general. I'm shocked to find this out about you, Mr. I know, Peter. I know. You a sci-fi junkie? I'm shocked. Madness. Shocked. Madness. There's also gambling here too. Have your winning <laughs> for, for sure. It, it um, you know, fifty years fifty years later, we're celebrating it. We're Christopher yeah. Nolan is showing it at Cannes. It's coming back to the to the theater. There's something we all want to experience 2001. I don't think we ever really want to know about it. And thankfully, Kubrick himself said he will, you know, it's open to interpretation. He doesn't exactly know what it's about. He has his own vision for, for But that's what things. I love about Stanley Kubrick. I love that. And I love that all of these brilliant filmmakers, Christopher Nolan, all these things, I love that if you were to watch them watch the movie, these sophisticated, they know how things are, they can, you know, get things done, that you would watch them be these, like, little fanboys and get so excited. And that's something I love when I watch interviews with, with filmmakers is hearing them talk about the things that are like, Oh my gosh, I got to talk to Stanley Kubrick about how he did this. And Oh mm -hmm. gee, it was, it was just so neat. Like listening to um, Steven Spielberg talk about how he sat and watched Lawrence of Arabia, like sitting next to David Lean and how he was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, David <laughs> Lean. And how did you do this? And how did you do that? And, and just watching him get like a little boy about that. And that's one of the things I love about films is it brings it brings us all together on that. We're all those, we're all these wide-eyed kids experiencing this together. We're star children. Uh, we are. We are, oh I we are the I star children. But, but it's true. It's that shared experience, especially with a film like this, which is so 
wide open and full that you can go back and discuss it because there isn't like no this is the official this is how it was this is what it means no one interpretation there are as many interpretations as there are people in the world or star children as it were we did not get to one thing though i do want to bring it up uh there was an original score for oh, yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Brian, you sent that over to me and I gave it a listen. Yes. And it's it's a fine it's a fine piece of music. It's like serviceable and it's sci-fi. It it has some of the, you know, the power and mystery that mm-hmm. undoubtedly Kubrick was going for, but it's all wrong. It's all wrong for the movie. Yep. The yep. Uh, as we know, there's the the main theme. Uh, Thus spoke Zarathustra by the other Strauss, Ricard uh, Strauss, is the <laughs> it's it's is now so iconic that yep. it's just the theme to 2001. That's like exactly. I, I've seen that listed on. That's like, what people call it. Just like the William Tell like, Overture will forever be the Lone Ranger. Exactly. Um, um, but yeah, there is a story there. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's 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 the ultimate example of a director falling in love with the temp track, mm. uh, because Kubrick had selected all of these things to edit the film to, and he had uh, he had on his mind a lot more than just something to cut together the film. Uh, there's a lot of thematic um, uh, undertone uh, to a lot of the selections. I'll get back to that in a second. Alex North, uh, who also composed Spartacus, uh, you know, mm. for uh, Kubrick, um, terrific composer. Another one of those, always a bridesmaid. He never got an, an uh, Oscar, even though he was nominated for 15 of them. Did the music for Spartacus, for Shan Autumn, for Streetcar Named Desire, uh, Cleopatra, just a, an incredible uh, uh, composer. Uh, was hired to do some music, and, and legend has it that he didn't know that his film, the score, wasn't going to be used until he saw the premiere and was devastated. I think that's probably not true. He had to have figured out that, you know, after he'd completed like half an hour of music for, you know, a two and a half hour of music, and they didn't call to ask him for any more, he probably figured <laughs> something was up. But yes, uh, he was good friends with Jerry Goldsmith, um, uh, another fantastic film composer. Um okay who always considered it a crime that uh, you know, that North's uh, score was not uh, used for the film because he felt it was more thematically unified and everything. And, uh, you know, I'll give it that it, there's some great music in it. Uh, you know, and uh, Goldsmith himself recorded the unused score sometime in the 90s. Uh, and I happen to have the copy of that recording, which I shared with you, Steve. Yes. And, yeah, you hear, uh, you yeah. hear the okay. very strong influence of, uh, okay, I'm trying to do this thing that's like what Stanley has in his temp track. You hear his kind of rendition of uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which, uh, you know, hits a lot of the same points, uh, but doesn't have that just elemental force of the CGC, uh, (laughs) you know, rising tone uh, of that chord um, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And uh, it's, it's the same with a lot of them. He had a score for a lot of the Dawn of Man sequence. Um, and as you know, it was totally unscored. I'm glad um, unscored. I am too. You know, I think he's a great composer. Kubrick's choices of music were absolutely the right call. He never had a, a completely composed score in a film after this. Um, he used a lot of music by, uh, you know, a, a, a Hungarian composer named Georgi Ligeti. All that strange uh, the, yeah. the voices uh, and the eight tone and stuff. Yeah. Uh, used him in uh, several more of his films, including The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut. Um, uh, the Shining. You know, 
very very specifically chose uh, chosen pieces. Um, another thing I was going to mention when we were talking about the Star Child is that uh, thus spoke Zarathustra is meaningful on more than one level. Besides just being incredibly powerful as a piece of music, it also the title refers to a book by Nietzsche, uh, which is where he posits the theory of the Ubermensch, the Superman or Overman, the next stage of human evolution. Gee, what is the film about? Oh, it's the next <laughs> stage of human evolution. So simply play. by, uh, well, you know, I mean, it, it, Nietzsche uh, you know, certainly was taken there by, uh, you know, certain uh, villainous yes. types in the uh, first part of the 20th century. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be interpreted that way, though Nietzsche's intentions are debatable. Um, but I love this, that simply by making a certain musical choice, without explaining it in the slightest, if you know what it is and where it, what it, where it came from and what it refers to, you get a clue as to what the final portion of the film is all about. There is a timelessness to the music. Mm -hmm. And... Like you can have a film like the film score, the Alex North score is great, and there are, there are certain when you hear the, when you hear the Star Wars theme, you you're thinking Star Wars. You hear the Jurassic Park theme, you're thinking Jurassic Park, the mm. Batman. Theme. Any, any, whenever you hear John Williams, you go, "Oh, this is this is the theme to this yep. specific movie," and that and that really works. When you have a great score, it's so beautiful, and I love list. I love I love film scores. I love them so much, but you you have this thing that is divorced from a movie that was created before the before we mm -hmm. had motion pictures and it that becomes something a little more intangible it you know because it's because it's not it's not written with any one thing in mind it's written with this i think it was an opera or something or something at the time that the tone it, poem i think it's called oh yeah a, a tone poem and it becomes a little more accessible and universal, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, and so it's not. So it's not just married. It's like eventually, yes, it became married to two thousand one, but that's mm -hmm. because of the success of two thousand one, the cult status, and not necessarily the uh, you know, the, the music, uh, music as it as it were. But it became so ingrained in our minds. And now we think. Now we think of two thousand one, not because this was written for two thousand one, because this was written for humanity, uh, yep. almost. <laughs> that uh, that Kubrick was absolutely correct in using the temp the temp track. Plus, I imagine he also saved a boatload on licensing fees uh, for that. So, good, good quite possibly, you. quite possibly. Yeah, both 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 Strausses had been dead for some time by the time two thousand one came around. They're all they're probably all in the public domain at that point. In fact, I'm not even sure if the recordings of those pieces used for the film were specifically recorded for the film, or if he just got them from other sources. Right. I think likely the latter. I would I would not be surprised if it, if it were the latter. Although I would not, also not be surprised if he brought in a whole symphony orchestra just to record that one thing. Well, he was he was actually sued by Georgi Ligeti for uh, altering one of his pieces uh, because you hear some of the the strange vocal stuff, but Kubrick added some additional uh, distortion oh, yeah. uh, and other effects uh, in that final sequence in the hotel room, and uh, Ligeti was not very happy about that because he was not consulted about it. Artist, right? Yeah, musicians. <laughs> but I guess not so upset that he didn't let him use uh, his music in two of his other films. <laughs> yeah, you know they they worked it out. They worked it out. We have been talking a while. Uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Did this have been nominated for Best Picture? 
okay, now this part I'm already for. Um, totally, it a thousand percent should be nominated. Take out Funny Girl, put in two thousand one A Space Odyssey. Okay, that's my yeah. Um, for that year, my picks were two thousand one A Space Odyssey, The Lion in Winter, which was nominated, right. and if that movie had won. I would be a lot happier because Lion and Winter is one of the greatest movies ever made. It's it's perfect. Um, Rosemary's Baby, The Producers, and Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. That would have been my top five nominees. And honestly, I would have voted for Rosemary's Baby. Looking back, I think that movie still holds up very, very well. And it's just a matter of personal preference here. I find it more enjoyable to sit down and watch Rosemary's Baby than 2001 A Space Odyssey. And, and, and that has nothing to do with the movie. It's a perfect movie. It's a groundbreaking movie. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Personally, if I'm going to sit and watch a movie, I'm going to watch Rosemary's Baby or The Line of Winter. But I think Rosemary's Baby, for me, I would have voted for that to be the best picture of the year. Okay. Brian? Well, it's my vote's probably fait accompli uh, at the at the at the moment. Uh, but yes, I certainly would have uh, you know nominated it and uh, selected it. Um, it. It is the best picture of of 1968. Nothing even comes close. The Lion in Winter, adore it. It's a great film. It's not a capital G, capital F, great film. 2001 is. Um, yeah, on any given night, yeah, I'd probably pop in Lion in Winter just to see the the, the snappy patter. Uh, 2001 is a commitment, as Amy said. It's more of an experience than just uh, you it know. Is. I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and uh, you know uh, have a glass of wine and watch a movie. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, it is. Um, like I said, there's an argument for it to be, if not the greatest, then one of the greatest films of all time. Um, you know. The the uh, the prejudices of the academy and uh, their uh, their voting tendencies uh, are something we could you know get into you know well I guess every single episode of this podcast yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they they tend to be incredibly conservative and they go with what they know they go with what um, you know, they they celebrate people they know which is possibly why you know uh, Oliver won you know Carol Reed great filmmaker not Oliver not a great film uh, but it is it is what they know it is a safe choice and and the academy rewards awards safety much more often than um ambition which is probably why in the entire history of the academy awards it uh it took until this year for a science fiction film to actually win best picture right right uh it is a topic we have discussed at length you know we discussing this are gifted with the benefit of 50 years of 2001 is that's the gold standard of science fiction. It's the progenitor. It's, it is the monolith that inspired Star Wars, Close Encounters, mm-hmm. Arrival, Terminator, everything. Everything that contact. Came, everything, yeah, contact. Everything that came after is because of the road, the path that 2001 forged. So we have that. And at the time, you can understand like this is too too trippy, too art house for the Academy Awards. Is that bastion of you know, yeah. conservatism to really reward people get so mad at them especially when and they, the, especially well, when the they critics, decide to reward oliver as, as opposed to literally anything else that came out in 1968 
Don't forget that the critics savaged it, too. I mean, Pauline Kael called it trash masquerading as cinema. Uh, I've never been more angry with her than that. Oh, she trashed trashed everything except the movie Nashville. She loved the movie Nashville. (laughs) And that's it. She she loves Bicycle Thieves, too. So you listen to that one as well. So, um, So we're 50 years now into 2001. Any any prediction of how it will be in fifty? How this will be perceived in fifty more years? I think it'll still make people wonder because look at you—you're the younger generation. You all still love it, and we're all going to raise our kids to love it. Mm-hmm. And it's just an inspiring film. Yeah, there is there is no other film like it. Period. And so the experience of watching it will always be fresh. It will always be interesting. It will always be compelling. It will always be 2001, A Space Odyssey. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on this very special episode. Uh, It was great having you here. Loved hearing your thoughts on it. Uh, If people wanted to hear more of your movie thoughts, can they find you online anywhere? Oh, well, uh, can they? Possibly. Should they? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you have, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I i can not think off the top of my head of a, like a publicly available, uh, you know, online presence that I have at the moment. Although there is a, a film blog, a film music blog that I used to write, uh, called, um, music from and inspired by, uh, but I, I haven't written on that for years. Uh, you could go. You could go Google that and and look at my thoughts on uh, you know the 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 few dozen uh, scores that I managed to review before I abandoned it a few years ago. Okay, okay. And Amy Thompson, where can folks find you? A Thomason Eleven on Twitter and message us on Facebook. I love chatting with people on Facebook. Yeah, yeah see, that's much more succinct. There you go. Amy. There you go. You're, you're already pro. Amy's Amy's great with the conversation. You can also find us at osforgepodcast at gmail.com do write in with your thoughts on 2001 a space odyssey how if it is held up to you or if it is not held up and be sure to find us on social media at oscar watch pod next week we go back down to a regular four-year reconsideration with uh the start of summer i can think of no better start of summer movie than 1975's god i'm looking forward to this is gonna be (laughs) This is going to be a lot of fun. We go from the sublime to the ridiculous, all with great practical effects. The sublimely ridiculous. The sublimely ridiculous <laughs> of uh, uh, ridiculousness of Jaws and all of its sequels. Looking forward to discussing that. Uh, everyone, thank you for tuning in. I know this has been a long one. We appreciate your ears and your attention. And until next time, we'll see you on the red carpet. <laughs>